famed author Clive Cussler. The hero Dirk Pitt. Good Lord, sweetie, you're not even dressed yet. Since you walked out on your husband, you mean. You're a classic case of an emotionally depressed and frustrated female. The worst kind, I might add. Raise the Titanic. Episode 5. Sweet nourishing meth. It, it's prescribed for me. It's fine. All right. It's just, yeah, for me, it is. <laughs> I'm sure there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Those, no. They're all just meth anyways. Precisely. So, see. Safe nourishing meth. <laughs> How are you doing? Are your kids back in school yet? <laughs> is it next week? Yeah, it is next week. Wow. Yeah. Oh, for me too. I cannot wait. I thought all you Americans went back in August. I think it's just West Coast. And it's oh, confusing. Okay. We go after Labor Day, which is a made-up holiday, as they all are, but this one is for our soldiers. We have one to start the summer and one to end the summer. Labor Day used to be about celebrating the worker, but now it's always <laughs> soldiers. People forget. They confuse it, confuse it with Memorial Day, so now it's just become intertwined. Yeah. Just go back to the original Labor Day in May. I think Ronald Reagan would burst into flames. Uh, there'd be a fire originating from his grave in California. <laughs> Take out communist Canada, just because you said that. Yeah. No, I mean, it is Labor Day up here, too, at the, the beginning of September, because I think I mean, we just copied the Americans. And it is also just, here, have a day off. You've earned it. As opposed to International Workers' Day on May 1st, which has slightly... Uh, different connotations. It does have different connotations. I, I still don't get Labor Day sales because what are you doing? <laughs> As a Canadian, I've been fascinated my entire life by the concept of Memorial Day is for barbecues. Uh, President's Day is for mattresses. Uh, I believe Veterans Day is Intel's. football. <laughs> Veterans Day is, it's always celebrated on a Monday. Is it? No. It's, it's the 11th, but usually the Monday nearest it you get all federal for federal purposes because nobody's that excited it's not like christmas where it's like oh it's the 25th it has to be on the 25th so well, for us it's always the 11th no matter what well that the 11th hour of the 11th month of the that makes sense <laughs> but i haven't been working a regular job in a long time and i know for banking purposes they just put it on the closest monday for your day off i've been noticing women young ladies their eyebrows all look weird has this hit Canada yet? Have you seen? Have your daughters done it to their eyebrows? They're doing these, they're, they're painting them on or something. Your video hanged for a few seconds, but I think I caught the gist of it at the end. Uh, no, I don't think my kids have done anything with their eyebrows. Is there new eyebrow stuff it's happening? Like they're, they're, there's eyebrow stuff happening and the women look odd. It's uncanny valley. If they're the ones I'm thinking of, it's the ones where they put like the stencil over their face and spray paint it because the eyebrow looks- Was that how they're doing it? Several times larger than it should. It's very strange looking, and they're all doing it. Oh, I'm just prepared for the noroviruses that are going to come this way. It was nonstop <laughs> last year. I can't hear that word without get, getting a little bit twitchy. You're right. A shiver went up my own spine, and I said it. Cool. Because <laughs> years and years and years ago, <laughs> I had a really bad case of that about a week before there was an outbreak in my city. You were the vector? 
So the running gag was <laughs> the running gag is I I was typhoid topper for that because <laughs> I kept working. I was like I had a small child at home. I had another baby on the way. We didn't have any money, so I kept working. And it was on the fourth day. I'm like, okay, I really have to go to the hospital. Like I feel absolutely terrible. And the doctor grabbed my head and yelled at me to stop going to work. Oh my god! <laughs> he was pissed at me. So like, okay, I'm going to take two days off. I go home, I take two days off work. I feel better. I get the medication. I'll go back to work. And then there's immediately a norovirus outbreak in my town. And I'm like, ah, that was my fault. I'm glad you had the extra time to rest, but <laughs> you have to take out a whole town? <laughs> <laughs> Not the whole town, surely. We had last year, my son on the way to the bathroom being upset, like grabbing my face and then turning to talk to me, just like throwing up in my mouth. Oh, oh. <laughs> just, just by like you know the randomness of the way kids move, and he just did this, and then went to talk to me, and just yeah. projectile vomit. No, oh was, God! Yeah, yeah, no, probably. <laughs> I, I may have <laughs> blocked out those memories, but I know they've all done horribly gross things like that. They all do. That's it's the human condition. We don't know how gross we are. We forget. <laughs> we have to forget. Or else, how could we like go? How can adults like do a G eight summit, or Wall Street, <laughs> or even just like go to work at a farm. It's undignified. You have to forget. The, the one story like that that I remember, just because it actually is pretty funny, is I think it was Easter, and we had like a really, really fancy candy store in town. It was the first time we'd ever seen like a fancy candy store that has all these import candies from Europe. Oh. And, and the kids got like these really, really good fruity bonbons. We told them not to eat them all, you know, right away, you know, save some space it out. Of course they didn't. We thought, oh, they're going to have a tummy <laughs> ache. That's fine. So we pull, uh, we're going to visit the in-laws. We pull pull out of our house. We get like a mile out of town and there's just a fruity explosion from the back seat that I can feel it on the backs of my arms and up the back of my head. I <laughs> and that was turning That's... the car around and cleaning the entire car out with a hose. <laughs> <laughs> and the youngest was just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. It's Not okay. It happens. It's, just... it's actually kind of funny. Just bright blue everywhere. Oh gosh! Tell the in-laws we're going to be late. Everybody had a nap. We were all better, and we kept and we went again. But that so beats doing it in the middle of a long car ride. You just knock it out in the end. Get that set really in the fabric. Yeah. Oh god! I we learned always have baby wipes and paper towels. Our daughter was two. We went to visit family, and they were like, "Oh, there's a Swiss village nearby in the mountains." And we go, and it was the sharpest turns: left, right, left, right. It was like. <laughs> Ziggy zaggy, ziggy zaggy. Oh, we got oil, one of those. Oil, oil, all the way there. <laughs> we got to the Swiss village. She pulled a poltergeist in the back seat, or the exorcist, or <laughs> pea soup everywhere. My husband was drenched because <laughs> she got him in the, you know, the back of the head and just down the back of his shirt. He couldn't go in anywhere. I went and bought t-shirts for both of them. Oh, I made geez. like a t-shirt diaper baby onesie out of like a large adult size man t-shirt. <laughs> I've done that before, yes. You have to wear this for the next, you know, day and a half. I was reading this, these chapters, and I thought, I don't know if I ever told you about my family friend, uh, Larry Doyle. He was on the USS Hornet. Oh, I don't know anything about that, but carry on. And uh, he was, well, he was in World War II. He joined up when he was 13 because he went home, and his mom died when he was younger. And his dad was like a gambler fighting kind of guy, a, a tough guy. He's like, well, son, I got to go to jail tonight. There's no way around it. You got to figure your life out. He's like, well, you're on your own. Join the Navy. <laughs> 13, time, time to join the Navy. So he 
joins up. The judge signs the paper. He had that in his in his office in his home for a long time because he was thirteen. He had no legal guardian, and he winds up on the Hornet and he's watching a movie, and the screen catches fire. Oh, yeah. And you notice it like from the lower corner just burning up because it burns up real. It burned up real fast. And he was like, "Oh, this." He's like, "That doesn't happen all the time." <laughs> and it took him like five minutes. Like, oh, we're sinking. And oh, Jesus. thirteen years old. Or maybe he was fourteen by that point. And he he was fine. I was gonna say I I hope he survived. Well, now he's dead. Now he's incredibly dead. <laughs> he went on to live until in his mid nineties. Oh, and geez. he was a heck of a guy. Cool. And he was engaged when he left, as you are at thirteen. What year was this? For a few years. Would have been forty two. Okay, well. Forty one, forty two. I mean, yeah, like I read stories that take place in the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties, and it's really amazing the culture shift that happened. Before World War Two and after World War Two, so I can admit, yeah, before World War Two, I can see, you know, he's thirteen, he's got a little lady back home. You're totally hung. I cannot hear you. I don't know if you can no, hear the me. The video died again. The video died for longer this time. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to Custler Hustlers, the only Clive Custler podcast that made it seventeen entire episodes without having major audio recording difficulties. Uh, I am your co-host, Topper, and Nancy is not here because the recording session for this episode got completely chewed up and mangled and garbled, and we are missing the first 10 minutes of the recording after we do this intro. Now, fortunately, most of that was trying to reconcile the stupid nonsense that happened at the end of the last episode and chapter 30, which is actually quite short. So I'm just going to recap chapter 30, and then we'll rejoin the part of the recording that survived with chapter 31. Uh, chapter 30 is mostly Pitt and Sandecker arguing. They're having their own mini parlor scene, and they are both angry that the Titanic seems to be six entire miles from where it's supposed to be. Because, you know, the Atlantic Ocean is very small, and they should be able to really pinpoint where the Titanic sank 80 years ago. They both think that it's going to take, you know, weeks and weeks and months and months of searching, and they're going to burn through their whole budget just trying to find the Titanic. So Pitt has the great idea of, how about we just send the submarines to exactly where the Titanic is? You know, skip all the searching, just go to where it is. And everyone stares at him like he's an idiot, because he kind of is, if you're going to lead with that without explaining anything, and he waits a long time before he explains and says, how about we just take every piece of data, every recording, every note, every first-hand, second-hand, third-hand account of the night the Titanic sank and feed all of it into Numa's supercomputers. And I bet that will spit out the exact location. And it'll take about two days. By that time, we'll have the MODOK and the sea slug ready to go like heading towards the Grand Banks, and we can just send them the Titanic's exact location. And everyone's like, oh my god, Dirk, you're so correct. It's 1976-1987. Supercomputers can do anything. So they start punching all the information into Numa's supercomputers, which can do anything. Is that Superman 3? Is that when Richard Pryor invents the supercomputer that can do anything? They have that in this book. Anyway, after that, we segue to Chapter 31 which is a long car ride with Donner and Seagram already in progress. Because it's a very short chapter, it's one car ride that took me by surprise. And it's uh, Seagram says that if the Russians 
could build a working system in 30 months if they got the Byzantium, if they got to the Titanic first. If Kemper, the naval chief of staff that we met uh, in the last episode, lets the Russians get the Byzantium. If Kemper is a secret commie. Where does any of that come from? <laughs> Why is Seagram just like, like, yeah, uh, this plan's also stupid. And also, if the highest naval officer in the country is a communist, everything could go to hell. Why would you think that or assume that or tell Donner that or go through any of this? What's going I on? I imagine something was edited out of this. But you know how like you read something or you watch something that you're putting together. You see all the pieces. But mm -hmm. You can't see the whole picture because you're just too close. I think that happened to him. I think he <laughs> excised some, some part of a plot that hit the cutting room floor that had some extemporaneous detail that we really need to establish why it's a, a sound thought that the head of the naval, uh, the Department of Na the Navy is a commie. Like that, people should jump on him and be like, what? This is very strange. <laughs> this is an accusation that is coming out of left field. This book spends so much time nerding out about naval history. It devotes a lot of time to all the Russian players that are involved with this. They devote a lot of time to Seagram's marriage to Dana. And it's just like two incredibly short sections of two incredibly short chapters about leaking this to the Russians and why that's bad and why someone's a commie. Yes. And that feels like a C plot that got added and was not tied into anything else just yet. But, but it does feel... We have to make everyone more paranoid. Kind of authentic, because you could have two paranoid government agents deciding the fate of the universe mm -hmm. all on their own with emotional turmoil and... Uh, See, that I like. Complicated I, home, just... home matters. That's, you know, their their decisions might have an outpaced or an outsized in proportion to their own existence kind of impact on the world. That happens. It just takes one guy to push the button, right? Mm -hmm. I absolutely like the implications. It just seems that in the text... It pops up kind of out of nowhere. It's very sudden. Absolutely. And the other guy goes along with it. Oh my God, you're right. I blame the lead and the gasoline. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and then we start chapter 32 and Pavel is back. We're back in Russia. Pavel Margonian. And Pavel is groveling bootlicker to, oh, what's his name? Captain Prevlov. Oh, Prevlov. Yes, Pe Prevlov, the, the Russian dark pet who is always in control, has to deal with... Uh, Pavel and he's reprimanding him and he's like there's hidden beating in everything mm -hmm. why is this Numa vessel changing course why is you idiot you fool why do I have to explain such basic national intelligence things to you it's like the the uh, the placement of a comma yes a, a tiny p scrap of paper everything could lead to unraveling the mystery and this is how we got to Q and chemtrails and gay totes because there's meaning <laughs> in everything there's meaning in every comma, meaning in every every typo, every tweet, every kofefe. Oh, kofefe. <laughs> I can't believe we had to live through that. What does it mean? I can't believe that was that was in the news cycle. Like professional journalists had to talk about that for a week. Yeah, um, it was our <laughs> shining moment as a country. <laughs> I feel it all started to go downhill around kofefe. <laughs> it was so downhill before then. It was, uh, where's a grassy knoll when you need one? Pavel gets his dressing down, and then he uh, he goes to the restroom and gets a uh, a secret envelope. Oh, I can't read my handwriting here. He gets <laughs> oh, he gets a spy envelope, not a sex yes. envelope. He gets a spy envelope in the restaurant men's room. 
This is 6.40 p.m. Uh, that they established they would meet last time when they met in the park. So now they're meeting in the men's room, and Pavel meets a fat guy. Gives him an, he's, he's incredibly obese. This is mentioned two or three times in that one yes. paragraph. <laughs> and He's some muckety-muck at the KGB. Yes. He drops the envelope. Uh, Sally, you, you drop this. Pavel takes it, and now he is the king of the castle. Oh, yeah. In a few chapters when Margonian pops back up. Oh, he's just a dick. It's it's kind of yes. great, actually. <laughs> it is. He, if you've ever had a boss you wanted to punch in the face, this is <laughs> this is the next chapter is for you. Well, the chapter after the next chapter. Yeah. Look at there. Chapter 33 is, I don't know if, because I have the audiobook, I don't know if that was just like one page in the book or what, but that was just, and then it was gone. But there are a couple of good lines in that chapter, if you want to take this one away. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you, I will. I'll take this. So Seagram gets a Dear John letter uh, from his wife, Dana, and she hates to leave him. She loves him with all of her heart, but it's just too difficult to love him when he keeps rejecting her. She's too fragile to endure the endless rejection. So she writes in her Dear John letter, forgive my female frailty. Oh, I wrote that down yourself, too. Lady. That was the one line I was going to bring up. I just like, forgive my feminine frailty. Oh, Clive, so close. Fuck this girl with a duck. No way. Just... <laughs> oh, wait till we get to the next chapter. I got a lot of stuff for the next chapter. <laughs> for every war a woman's had to endure because her husband ran off to join in the first wave and she's got to keep the kids alive and get raped by the battalion that's walking through in the mud while she hides her kids in the basement or every uh, night witch. Or a lady digging trenches in World War One because that happened left and right too because they were right up against farmland a lot of a lot of times. We die bringing humans into this world. We take care of them. Men go for cigarettes and never come back. Get women are the frail ones. Yeah, up until now, think about the most powerful female uh, character we've met. Sorry, woman character. Woman character sounds weird. Female character. I just can't say female without cringing a little bit just because I know uh, the implications. Thanks to men completely ruining that word. Uh, the most powerful lady that we've met in these three books, and that would have been Terry from book one, who is a like Interpol DEA drug enforcement agent. And all she does is wear lingerie and get kidnapped. <laughs> oh, yes. That's the yes. most agency a woman has had in these books. They do get better later on because... Refer back to... Uh, oh, and TD. TD. Not to spoil too much, for like 10 books, Dirk Pitt has an on-again, off-again thing with a lady congresswoman who is like a tough, empowered female character who actually seems fairly well-written, even if all of her clothes fall off the second she's around Dirk. But we, we do get a recurring, interesting woman later on. We're not there yet. Maybe he's radioactive or gives <laughs> off like a, be a bleach efflorescence that it weakens the, the fabric. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, we've learned that Dana has moved in with her friend Marie, who's a bit of a thundercoat. Uh, she's really like, I didn't why, say you, that. why are you here? Go, go back and support your man. Don't you think he needs you right now? It's really hard for him. Have you thought about him? Oh man. Yeah. Cause they have two conversations. They have one conversation while Dana is standing in front of her closet, quote, going through the feminine ritual of deciding what to wear. Sure. Because men never look at their clothes and say, what's, what's clean? What's dirty? What smells okay enough to wear in public? Have you missed the last book? What matches? Dirk and the rainbow technicolor explosion? <laughs> but then Clive describes Marie very strangely, like half complimentary and 
then ending it with, she was almost provocative, were it not for her square chin. Yeah, she's got a lantern jaw. Lady's like a... Why was that thrown in? A real Greta Van Susteren over there. Yeah. A Greta Van Susteren for you, for your youngins was this lady who had this massive jaw, but she was really smart. She was a criminologist and she was made famous during the O.J. Simpson trial. And then she was hired by Fox News and had a lot of plastic surgery to get rid of said lantern jaw. Good for her, I guess. You can look at before and after pictures. Well, yeah. Yeah. patriarchy, lots <laughs> of surgery, but lots of money. I don't know where the... Go get your bag. Go get your money. It's Fox News. But also... Uh... If you're a lady on Fox News, I think you all have surgery to eventually become the same blonde woman. Oh, yes. Everyone's seen that meme. It, it's mandatory. But anyway... Marie talks until Dana starts about to cry, and Marie could see that an emotional crying jag was coming on, so she beat a retreat. And then Dana immediately downs- Like your good friend. <laughs> Dana <laughs> immediately downs to Librium, which I had to look up. And that was the first commercial benzodiazepine. Great. Which was later on tweaked, and the tweaked version became Valium, and they still sell Librium now as Limbitrol. I looked it up, and they said it was for fear of- a. Uh hospital procedures, fear, fear of heights. It, it's supposed to be a hypnotic pre-Xanax kind of pill. So you take a, you, you will kind of uh, forget moments of, of time. Oh, that's fine. One, once around you took it, like a roofie, like a light roofie. I'm sure you're, you're, you're only forgetting bad things. Let's take Since that. It, it's not like a take one a day thing. It's just like pop a, pop a bunch when you feel stressed out. Yes. So she takes two because her man good old is so bad. She has to take experimental Valium. Yeah. And, and then she gets ready right away. She gets ready right away and just does the following things. Takes two protovalium, waits for the drugs to take effect, puts on a dress, straightens her hair, picks out shoes, and then she's ready to go. Marie's waiting in the car. This would have all taken like four hours. Yeah. If we're doing this with Clive Costler misogyny math, <laughs> she picked out a dress and shoes. My God, these pills are amazing. I've never seen the color purple. And I had to write down four lines from their conversation in the car because they're driving to work. She has just popped two benzos before going to work at a government agency. <laughs> the thing where she'll have her morning martini and it'll be fine. I guess five lines because once Dana pops in and says, okay, ready to go, Marie says, since you're not a bitch anymore, did you pop one pill or two? <laughs> so her drug use is not a, a cry for help. It's just a punchline. Yeah. They don't even circle back to it. Seagram is trying to save the world, and Dana, this druggie who won't have a baby with him, is off living with a female. And she says, you don't understand it. A man accepts the thankless burden of responsibility. Let me say that again. A man accepts the thankless burden of responsibility. We women never do. Oh, yeah. Immediately followed by, we don't plan ahead like men do. Oh, yes, I have that. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, <laughs> We don't plan ahead like like men do. Second Iraq War? Marie calls Dana the worst kind of female. Marie's big argument is he sounds like he's due for a mental breakdown. If you had an ounce of guts, you'd stick it out with him. No, that's how you get murdered. She's telling her to go back to the guy who's about to crack. He's mentally unstable and you're on pills that put you in a coma. You should really go back. This is, this is the safest time to go back to your abusive spouse. <laughs> <laughs> After leaving him the dear John that says, don't contact me. No, they're, they're both spiraling, but it's fine because it's 1987 and we'll just go to an EST meeting or something. And it uh, one of the ones near the end, I might just have to drop this audio clip in just because I'm not sure I, I can capture the disdain of 
uh, the reader, but... I'm not about to play the liberated female and jump onto every penis that wanders across my path. No, you don't jump on penises. You use it like handles. <laughs> Marie wants her to get back out there and get dating, because it's super easy. And really, but what is, what is Marie about? Does she want her to go back to her husband and be the obedient wife? Apparently. Or does she want her to be the town pump? Which is it, Marie? What's going to make you happy? <laughs> I, I'm guessing nothing's going to make Marie happy. She's, yeah, she she's like, got her crooked jaw, and she's miserable. She completely changes sides. It was like, you suck. You're the worst kind of woman. Go back to your husband. Well, since you're not, I've got some men I can set you up with. Yeah, she's bringing by for lunch. I mean, it, yeah. Danny can practically order one off the menu. It's that easy. <laughs> I knew this chapter was going to last for a while on this, on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> also, I talked to my wife, who is now done watching the movie, and we haven't talked too much. Did you get her a present? <laughs> oh, I'm going to. We haven't talked too much because we don't uh, want to ruin the banter. But there's apparently two short... Save for her. There's apparently in the movie only two short scenes with one woman. And it seemed like that plot was added on. And I'm like, oh, wow. They either compressed or cut a lot of Dana from the movie. But from the bits I've seen, because she watches it on, on her laptop next to me sometimes, it took her like five tries to get through the movie. Oh. As far as I can tell, they've left everything else in. So they only cut the women. <laughs> not like it was going to pass the Bechdel test ahead of time anyway. <laughs> they were, this was so estrogen laden. This story, they had to cut the women. It was like yeah, steel no. magnolias. What were they going to do? <laughs> it was just hens yammering away. Uh, anyway, chapter 35. It This is entirely a nerd chapter. This is research. It is. This is oceanography. This is a nerd chapter. This is, we meet Dr. Murray Silverstein. And I love this because I love people named Murray. Yes. You're never going to meet a bad person named Murray. They're always good Murrays. And I don't think Clive has ever met a Murray because they made this Murray be a fan of Chardonnay. <laughs> you don't make Dr. Murray Silverstein a wine mom, <laughs> Chardonnay. But Dr. Murray's got a Titanic simulation going on. Yes. They're at the Alexandria College of Oceanography. And they have one of those gigantic indoor water tanks that's like 30 feet high and 200 feet across. And they use that to simulate boats sinking, basically. They sink a boat, they raise a boat, yes. they do it over and over. It's while I was reading this that I remembered my family friend, Larry Doyle, because he described the sensation of the boat sinking really? or ship, as it were. And he was like, you really do have time to feel everything. <laughs> yes, not fast. <laughs> you think it'd be fast. No, I remember that from Lions Led by Donkeys. They had a whole, I don't know how many episodes it was, on the Pacific Theater in World War II. And there were battleships that like basically were completely holed and shot through on one day and were still kind of sinking the next day. It was just something that had not occurred to him in the, when he was telling it because he read about it in Pulp Fiction books. Yes, but he didn't ever have a ton of money to go to movies or so forth. It wasn't like he saw Leo in the Titanic. Uh, <laughs> and whenever he would read fictional accounts of ships sinking, it was as fast as he could read it. It is very different when you're suddenly 13 and in the Navy. <laughs> and then you have time to smell gasoline and feel the cold water. And really, it lights all the senses, apparently. You have <laughs> adrenaline, exhaustion, cold, fear of death. Fear of water, fear of the guy next to you, because he might push you down. He might get a bum life jacket. Oh, there's lots of thoughts happening. Yeah. One of the neat things about the nerding out in this chapter is, I guess this was the theory at the time, 
uh, based on the noises people heard and the reports given from people who were rescued from the Titanic. But in order to make the model of the Titanic sinking in this huge tank accurate, they have it filled with marbles and they've drilled some extra holes in the boat. And Sandecker asks, like, what's that for? And apparently all the boilers ripped free of their moorings and fell out of the boat when it went up on its on its nose. And, and all these like thousand ton boilers just rattled around and fell out and punched their own holes on the way out. I loved the way this was written because that's mm-hmm. terrifying. Yes. It actually took my <laughs> breath away. Could you imagine? You're just some poor bastard stuck in steerage because if you have steerage, it makes first class that much better. Just the juxtaposition. The champagne has more bubbles if there's a steerage. That's just science. Um, so you're locked in steerage. Water's coming up. You're like, okay, you're making your peace with God. You're going to drown. You and your family, you're, gonna, you're not going to die in the potato famine. Famine, You're going to just drown in the ocean. And suddenly, a big wall comes rolling towards you and just wipes you out. A, ca- a cast iron... While you're busy drowning. That seems rude. A cast iron boiler, the actual size of a house. They're like 30 feet across and 20 feet high. That's like a little house made of metal and filled with water. Filled with boiling water. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> just it's worse. Every word you're making it worse. <laughs> and there's 20 of them. There's 20 or 30 of these things. There's a lot of boilers. This is incredibly unfair. <laughs> it's the worst Plinko machine. If you've ever seen Galaxy Quest, why is there a, a stompy stompy <laughs> room? This doesn't make any sense. Whoever wrote this episode should die! Oh my god. That scene is... I, I laugh so hard... Every time I see that scene, just start to finish. We didn't know that movie was going to be good. Galaxy Quest is a movie that makes fun of sci-fi, Star Trek movies. Uh, it came out in the 90s. We went to Blockbuster, risked parking space, because in Brooklyn, if you left your parking space, you had to like camp out for days until you can go back home and get another one. So we did that. We went to Blockbuster. We got the movie they had left was Galaxy Quest. Never heard of it. This is going to be a dud. It was one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Just the low expectations. Yeah. The salt of low expectations makes everything so much better. <laughs> and it still holds up today. It's still funny. And I mean, the negative drag factor of the lead role being Tim Allen, like at the peak of his Tim Allen powers, is definitely mollified by, oh, God, son of a bitch. Why can't I remember his name? Oh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, Lord of the, by the sword of Rothgar. Alan Rickman. Uh, who has a meatball recipe that is kick-ass, by the way. <laughs> the awesomeness of Alan Rickman in this movie definitely uh, overshadows Tim Allen, who is just playing like an asshole Captain Kirk. And this is also the movie that gave us Justin Long in his very first role ever. No. Yeah. That cannot be true. He had to be in some teen dream thing before then, because wasn't he like 30 by the time he got to that movie? He's always looked 30. He's never looked younger. <laughs> he's never looked older. I don't know. How, I haven't seen him lately. Oh, no, he was in that movie last year. Oh, he played a... Wait, what? Okay, so I know that movie has Justin Long, but I can't remember if that was his first movie or if that was Sam Rockwell's first movie. I think it was Sam Rockwell. I think it was Sam Rockwell's first movie. The guy eating the popcorn? No, uh, Sam Rockwell was the guy who was like an extra in one episode. No, he doesn't have a name. He plays Guy. It was Monk who was eating the popcorn. (laughs) Guy Fliegman. Oh my God, Monk was so great. (laughs) He is permanently stoned. (laughs) He's inside out and he exploded. No. Justin Long, 99, Galaxy Quest, his first role, and he wasn't in Jeepers Creepers for two more years after that. He was in a uh, God damn. movie, a horror movie last year. Uh, I, I know he was uh, in Tusk. This guy, 
I didn't see Tusk. Oh, we welcome to another episode of I will describe a movie to Topper. <laughs> well, I try and guess because I yeah, can't yeah, yeah, yeah. remember every detail except for the except for the name of the movie. It was a horror movie. It's a girl. She goes to Detroit, stays in an Airbnb. Oh, oh, oh! Turns out there's a haunted thing underneath. Frick, frick, uh, barbarian. That was an amazing yes, movie. That's it. Like, it was for the real estate jokes. I mean, he's under there with the measuring tape, and I'm like, yes, exactly. Well, yeah, and apparently Galaxy Quest was Sam Rockwell's first major role. He was in Tiny Things before that. A movie called Tiny Things or just Tiny Things? Like Tiny just, Things? Just very tiny things. Uh, he played a prisoner for a couple of scenes in The Green Mile, and he had like two lines and lawn dogs, and that was it. And then he, he was like one of the main cast in Galaxy Quest. So- that movie launched a couple careers. Well, anybody's going to be tiny next to Michael Clark Duncan <laughs> in the Green Mile. God, yes. Oh, he was so great in that. Oh, yeah, he was. All right. So that's what happens when a chapter is nothing but oceanography uh, facts. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> is. Going to just a long turn. Whoa, did we have a tangent. <laughs> we start talking about movies that we enjoyed more. We got off the highway. Did we cut off the highway to see the giant rubber bands instead of going to Grandma's house? And then we get chapter 36. Chapter 36. Which is a huge chapter. Yes, Dirk and Al are back together. I don't want to say not a lot happens. I just feel that they put a lot of words into what is essentially, this is the chapter where they find the Titanic. Yes. And that they, that tone you did, just did there, where they find the Titanic. That <laughs> breathless movie man voice. That is, that is the ambiance of this whole thing. Uh, Dirk Pitt and Al Bordino are back together again. Regular Eric and Dylan. Uh, yes. This is the first time they've been back since the end of the Mediterranean caper. So many episodes. And they use the, the nautical term, wear away, which is a great term. How far yeah. away are you? In what direction? How long does it take to get to you? All conveyed in two words. <laughs> wear away. Early term. Should be used in common parlance. <laughs> Also, one line I had to write down, Gordino knew all the facts. If the unthinkable happened, an accident at 12,000 feet, there'd be no hope of rescue. A quick death would be the only prayer against slow asphyxiation in total darkness. Oddly relevant again. Uh, yeah. Um, again, I go back to that Titan submersible, Titan 1, that press officer for the U.S. Coast Guard who had to field the questions, did, did not envy that guy when they were like, well, what if you find them? <laughs> and they're intact. Uh, what do we do? Um, we'll put a pin in that. Wave. But no, no, no actual pins. But we'll we'll get back to that. We'll circle back. We'll watch them die slowly on TV. Uh, one second, Mike. My song's ringing it yet. All right. All right. I'm back. Sorry about that. No problem. My folks never call when it's convenient. Look at you, parents that are alive. Show off. So we get some fun backstory uh, with Al and Dirk, because anytime they're in the same room together, there is this weird sort of, you know, uh, when they have the love filter on Star Trek, when they look at a sexy alien and everything gets all fuzzy, that happens whenever Al looks at Pitt. It's the sweat in his eyes because he's not <laughs> well groomed. Yeah, so there's backstory about how they knew each other back in high school and they used to race hot rods on Newport Beach. And he knew Pitt better than any man alive or any woman. And then he does the whole thing that he does in every book about how Pitt has two identities, the friendly Pitt and the murder Pitt. It's like he contains multitudes, like a person. 
Multitudes of two. <laughs> yes, but if, if you have a friend who is either super charismatic or a coldly efficient killing machine, he's a psychopath who's good at masking. That's what that means. Yes, that's what that means. Like, yes, people contain multitudes. Not everybody has a multitude that's going to shoot a Russian in the face with a silenced pistol in the, in the north of Russia when you're just asked to go pick up a scientist. That's why I said they're a real Eric and Dylan. <laughs> That's a, that's a Columbine reference. Al, Al's a follower. Yeah. For all of his love for Dirk, he is a follower. And these two guys, Al would rather join Duma, an agency that has jurisdiction in your backyard pool, above ground even, <laughs> than go to therapy and get over Dirk. <laughs> I just ended all that with, in my notes, Al is clearly in love. Clearly. He knows everything about Dirk. Yeah. He's got a notebook with Al Pitt. Yeah, trying the last name out. Forever. And to talk, to go back to uh, generational changes, they mentioned Coney Island, which was where I would go if I wanted to see a dead body. I was, it was about an hour walk (laughs) from my house to Coney Island. And it was, um, there was in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, a crack epidemic. Good old Coney Island College. Go whitefish. When people just died, they just took their drugs and died. And then, you got to shoot the geek, which was they'd hire a homeless man and they put him in this in between two uh, sites where there used to be like hot dog stands or something. There was a depression that they took out all of the dirt done past the foundation. So it was depressed and there was a lot of fencing around it. So you'd stand up on the fencing. The homeless guy would run around on the inside of the pit and you'd shoot him with paintballs for a dollar to win like a rubber chicken or something. Different time. Your country's amazing. <laughs> It's back when dinosaurs were on the earth. I swear, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> That's that hustle grind set kids de- just don't have these days. Letting the wealthy hunt you for sport? Well, no, it was letting the poor hunt the <laughs> ultra poor. It's the most American thing ever. I know. It, well, it's the relatively wealthy. Because you have the rich who hunt the poor for sport, and the poor who apparently hunt the homeless, and the homeless who do crack. Well, maybe, maybe everyone did crack back then. There's a shocking amount of people did drugs back then. I remember the first time I saw a, a friend of mine with cocaine, I was scandalized. Like, <laughs> cocaine? How do you even get that? Like, it's a drug. You have to know somebody bad to get a drug. Like, nope, turns out you just have to be in the fashion industry. Well, as we learned in the first book, there are boatloads of heroin arriving in America all the time. So I'm sure you all can the get time. coke. Where there's enough drugs. So, and as we've established, there's... There were a lot of prescription drugs going on in the 80s, too. Like the... Dana's on benzos. The, the protozanex. And people were having martinis for breakfast, scotch for lunch. It was a great time. We... <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. That uh, that reminds me. This might seem like an odd segue. But while the submersible is going down, they spot a vampire squid. And in true boys will be boys fashion... Oh, my God. Pitt says, hey, that reminds me of your girlfriend. And then Rudy Gunn, who I forgot was on the submersible, pokes his head in and says, the one with no boobs? And Al just says, yeah, but her father keeps me floating in booze. And they just talk about booze for a while. And the weirdest thing happens in the audiobook at this point. For a few sentences, the pitch changes. Like It's like they put helium into the room. So I feel this was something they had to go back and re-record. But there's a couple of sentences explaining how this is just boys being boys and acting like this in order to, you know, stave off the stress of being in a tube at the bottom of the ocean. And then the voice goes back to normal and the book continues. It's really weird. 
I think everybody was emotionally dysregulated because they were undergoing substance withdrawal. It was hours since they've had a drink. Yeah. They've got to be a bit loopy. Maybe it's a combination of the bends and the shakes, the DTs. <laughs> he doesn't have a, his girlfriend's dad's booze anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they make it a point to point out that it's not worth it. He's not dating Miss Don Perignon. He's oh, yeah. dating... <laughs> it's like... G bat. Genghis Khan whiskey or something. Susie 3030. Shitty back alley tequila, like excellent name brands. <laughs> yes. And just to, the ripping on this guy's girlfriend. <laughs> well, he's there. Like he's there as the comic relief. He's the Sam Rockwell of this book. Yes. And also uh, chapter 36, we get a picture. I don't know if that Ooh. was conveyed thoroughly. My audiobook didn't get a picture. Oh. I I figured it didn't, unless it was going to be a very <laughs> impressive kind of audiobook. Like you have an implant. I think that might be between chapter thirty six and thirty seven because there is a huge time skip. But at the end of chapter thirty six, they find the number one smokestack. Yes, it's the end. The end of chapter. Yeah, but that's also also the beginning of chapter thirty seven. There, so they find the number one smokestack. They find the boilers. They find the Titanic. We're arguing in agreement. Yes, it's the end yes. and the beginning. It's is <laughs> a flat circle. I just mean, I think that picture is, I think that picture is related <laughs> it's, it's, to yeah. chapter 37. <laughs> You're agreeing with me wrong. Stop it. <laughs> but anyways, they find the Titanic. It's perfect. The paint is perfect. Everything's perfect. All the, all the chairs are still there. And they find it at 1142 AM, which is two minutes after Dirk predicted they would find it. Yes. Two it minutes after. So he doesn't get his uh, Zinfandel. <laughs> and... I took the coordinates that they put in the book versus the coordinates that the actual Titanic Ooh, research. was discovered. And Clap uh, Custer was 11.8 miles off. Dang. I, I was impressed. I mean, they did know where it sank. They had the exact coordinates of where it sank from the various ships that rescued it. But that's still a big ocean. <laughs> I'll call that pretty yeah. good. <laughs> Under 12 miles. I'm being impressed. That is fantastic. Way to go, Clive. And they find the Titanic. She's this little ship. And I say this like an idiot because a lot of people only see a ship when it's in water. If you haven't seen a ship out of water or completely, as it is described in this chapter, chapter completely underwater, which is a far more unlikely scenario. <laughs> it's um, a submarine. Ships are huge. Yeah. Just breathtakingly, gobsmackingly. A lot more um, of them is underwater than people think because it's it made of metal. And the bigger it is, the more metal you have to use to strengthen it. And all of that metal is going to make it sit lower and displace more water. And if it displaces more water, more water is pushing in on the sides. You need more metal to make it stronger. <laughs> They're big. It is. You feel like I stood next to, on a, on a school trip, we went to visit an aircraft carrier that was in dry dock. Ooh. So we got to touch the very bottom. I've never seen one. It didn't feel like a human or any group of humans, no matter how smart or how advanced could make some it's so big and i guess because of the nature of the shape it's not a a building you see those every day you're you're just immune to the majesty of it it is it it hits you like a slap it's like being mugged in a meadow it is so <laughs> huge it takes your breath away and i wasn't next to the biggest boat that was ever in dry dock i was next to an aircraft carrier which is granted a giant a giant ship but it wasn't like a fiesta cruise or carver cruise line is now yeah. Those are so huge. And tall. They're not classy. They're not good looking. 
they're but they are big and it's an amazing feat of human achievement <laughs> that they would need so much light to realistically see underwater so they lost me a little <laughs> bit there like how much lighting did you take under there do you have your ring lights? You're going to have selfies? <laughs> Big headlamps, because the, the sea slug is a yellow tube with two giant lights poking up, like, I guess, sea slug eyes. It, it, it sounds very cute. I'll give it that. The sea slug sounds adorable. Yes. And it, it does sound cute. Um, and they, they slide off on a, a anglerfish as it crosses their line of sight. <laughs> and I'd like to stick up for anglerfish here. They're adorable. They're awesome. If you're listening, anglerfish, you're not ugly. <laughs> that to me, I see the real you. We see you. But we we do get in this chapter the not just a chapter, third, but a whole new third. section. The oh yes, we're in part four. We're, after Regenesis, we're in part four. Yeah. So thirty six kind of slides into Regenesis. Yeah, I I wasn't sure if Regenesis was its own chapter or what, because just in the middle of nowhere, the guy reading the book just goes Regenesis, and then back to describing the Titanic. Like, oh, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Smooth transition. Smooth. <laughs> Wait, in, in the book, it's just, in the written book, it's just like, it's basically there's cobwebs. I had to knock out of the book. It was like, spooky. This is spooky. <laughs> the lights dim. The Titanic. It's clearly filled with ghosts. Oh, yeah. Haunted up the wazoo. You're underwater. It's dark. That's the book made that noise. And it's a paperback. <laughs> uh, oh, it says you're not recording. Oh, no. What? It says I am recording here. I've got the green check. On my end, it says user is experiencing some connection issues, but recording is being saved locally. So, I mean, it also still has the green check, but I'm not getting your little oscilloscope line, but it still says it's recording on your end. So. All right. I mean, if okay. it's recording on your end, I'll just, we'll, we'll just keep going, I guess, and hope for the best. Okay. Let's stop it here, because if it's not recording, we'll lose our place. This actually is a long, a full-sized episode, and... I had two chapters I hoped to get through, but yeah, maybe not. Let's let's stop for now. Okay. And, um, I will hit sub two. Like, <laughs> this has been Kusla Hustlers. Your hosts have been Topper and Nancy. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kusla Hustlers.